Crisis Management, Columbus Business First podcast series about leading through the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Eleanor Kennedy, and today's podcast features my conversation with Christy Angel, CEO of the YWCA of Columbus. Christy talks about the logistical changes her organization has had to make to allow for social distancing, how it's pivoting to cope with the financial challenges that are plaguing nonprofits at this challenging time, how she sees the crisis connecting with existing racial disparities in public health, and what it could mean for the future. Thanks for listening. I just want to start. Can you tell me a little bit logistically how has your life changed because of this? Are you working from home? Sort of what are you doing differently? So logistically, I do a little bit of both. I work from home. So days like today when I am kind of glued to the computer screen with back-to-back meetings and such, I'm likely not to go into the office, although I live close enough to walk to the office. So sometimes just a good walk over to the office is good for me to get out. And there's a chance that I may be able to do that later today. But what I try to do is go into our buildings at least every other day, if not every day. Yesterday, I was over at our family shelter sorting through donations and we had just an enormous amount and outpouring of what I consider love and support and lots of donations. So I was sorting through donations with one of our team members and driving donations back over to the downtown building. And I go in and do the mail. I mean, I kind of go in and just, you know, see people. Last week we were setting up um, a temperature station in our downtown building because we have to take the temperatures of uh, the women who live there when they go off premise and when they return. And so we were setting that up. So just, you know, I feel like my work is, um, in, when I'm in the office, it's, it's more engagement, checking on people, those that are actually, you know, that are working in front line, seeing that they have what they need, maybe making some changes in the office, doing some of the things that, you know, our team who, who we have a a team of people who are all working from home. And so doing the mail and signing documents and those kinds of things, it's good therapy for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, a chance to, to do some of those things just to keep the organization running and to review, you know, look at what's coming in and those kinds of things. And then there are a group of us that we're doing some uh, things for our frontline staff. So we uh, shop for them. We buy snacks and make sure that they have goodies to eat and to have when they are at work. Uh, We buy essential items for them um, so that they don't have to worry about grocery shopping, especially those that might work, you know, second and third shifts and um, maybe work. This is a second job for them so they can grab and go uh, some things that they may need for home. And then we also um, have lined up, um, whether we provide it or other vendors are providing uh, meals throughout Mm -hmm. the week for our frontline staff to, um, and the meals are timed perfectly so that first shift, second shift, and then some meals can be set aside for third shift. So people have maybe late lunch, early lunch, and dinner available to them. So that's one less thing that they have to worry about. So, you know, being around to receive some of that and thank some of the vendors who are helping us is also important to me. Can you talk, you mentioned the temperature stations. Can you talk a little bit more about any changes you've had to make in your buildings or anything else, kind of new challenges that you've faced in trying to maintain social distancing and everything? Well, so when we first started this, Eleanor, we um, probably just after 
the first order, not the school closing, but shortly thereafter, right before St. Patrick's Day, we made some changes in our downtown building and at the Family Center uh, with restricting visitors into the building, uh, restricting volunteers. And then when we received this, the final um, or the formal stay-at-home order, then we restricted, we even added more restrictions on access into the building. So volunteer donations, all of those kinds of things are picked up at the curb and brought into the building. So that if anything needs to be sanitized or you know, go through a sanitation kind of a period it can before it's used. We wanted to make sure that we kept, you know, families staying with us or our residents as safe as we can and as healthy as we can. So not permitting external visitors and was was very important. External visitors who may be doing some kind of, you know, needed for construction or work on one of our systems or something like that, then, you know, we ask that they go through kind of Everything, what everyone else is, you know, hand washing, now we're adding mask wearing, those kinds of things. In our family center, we used to serve dinner. Dinner was served, uh, was purchased and served by volunteers. And so we stopped that right as the shelter in place or stay at home order went into effect. And we asked those volunteers to please consider buying the meal, but they could not serve. And I think 85% of our volunteers bought the meal, actually probably higher than that, but I, the last I looked, it was about 85% of the volunteers bought the meal, sent the money, and then we were able to serve those meals with our staff, um, using existing staff. And then uh, we added, uh, because we're part of you know the community shelter board's homeless system, we added the temperature taking station last week. And so now anyone entering the family center Regardless of, you know, when they leave and when they come in, they have their temperature taken before and recorded before they go back into the building. And we do the same in the downtown building, as I said, with the ladies who may leave the premise, you know, and we take their temperature and record it when they come in. And that is so that if we see someone with a temperature above, um, I believe it's 100.3 is the temperature that the CDC recommends, then we have to kind of go through the process of, you know, talking to them about other symptoms, having them stay, you know, in their, in their unit, providing them with access to, you know, healthcare and, and those kinds of things and making sure that they are, uh, if they are indeed sick, then going through some kind of 14 day quarantine process, if they're in the downtown building, if they are in the family center, we have a way for someone to be quarantined for a period of time. But of course, this community shelter board has set up sick shelters and we would have to avail ourselves to one of those. Can you set the scene a little bit? How many people do you have in downtown and in the family center and sort of what, is, what do those environments look like? Who is living there? So the downtown, that's uh, what we call permanent supportive housing. So women who live with housing and live in their own uh, individual units with their own kitchens and baths. So, you know, not unlike in an apartment building uh, with common spaces and uh, their wraparound supports that those women receive. And so the wraparound services continue to, they continue on, but we do a lot of telehealth conversations with their mental health provider and, you know, online and uh, telephone conversations uh, with them. 
there are some hours, limited hours in the common spaces, but we limit the number of people who can be in there so that we can keep, keep everyone you know, safe and, and healthy. At the Family Center, we have room for 50 families. I think we, I believe we have 43 families right now. So we're down, which actually is a silver lining, I guess, going through this period that normally we have about 65 families. So 50 in room and 15 in what we call overflow. Um, Community Shelter Board has done a great job of keeping us out of overflow during this period because we would not be able to social distance in overflow. But we're actually down, uh, we have 43 families last night. So that's down a bit and um, that's good so that we can properly social distance. Again, keeping everyone safe and and as healthy as, as we possibly can. Families there, we also have childcare and some families are using the childcare we had some families who had family members who were, they were considered essential workers. So they were working and they needed childcare during that time. We also, our childcare is considered, it's a pandemic childcare site. Uh-huh. So we also can provide childcare to our employees who are working and, and considered essential. How, I know that's been such a topic um, and we've talked to the community shelter board a little bit about it. How have they been able to keep you below the you know, full capacity, I guess, just kind of finding other places for people to go? You know, in the family system, I think YM has now gone down as well. I think I heard their numbers uh, Monday. They were down quite a bit. And I believe that, you know, with the families, we're seeing some families um, who are staying with other, maybe other family members or friends and kind of, you know, sheltering um, in place that way. We have had some families exit because they found housing and they had the resources to afford housing. And I know that uh, Columbus Metropolitan Housing lifted some of their requirements for inspections and things like that. If someone had a Section 8, a Section 8 certificate, they were able to get into housing more quickly without all the, you know, kind of the inspection hurdles and things like that. And I believe those things have greatly improved our circumstances. I also believe, and we'll see, but you know, some families, they will receive the stimulus checks from the federal government. And so we'll have to see if that impacts uh, any family's ability to find housing as well. Kind of more, I guess, philosophically, I know one of the things you've talked about with the organization is its mission of achieving equity. A, are you starting to think about, you know, as we start to come out of this, what new challenges or efforts you'll have to do? And then, you know, is there anything more, any voices you're, you know, fighting to make sure are heard as we're figuring out what we're doing right now? Or sort of how does that mission factor into all of this? We have been talking um, not just with Columbus Public Health, but we've been talking across the YWCA networks in Ohio around racism as a public health crisis and the inequity around uh, the health disparities and, and those kinds of things. And several of our team members went to a conference in Cleveland uh, where they heard from the Milwaukee, Milwaukee County Commissioner, Public Health Commissioner, who I believe Mil, uh, there's a county in Milwaukee, I don't know the county, but Milwaukee was the first to kind of declare racism as a public health crisis and to kind of outline a playbook for how you go about declaring that, but, but really then what do you do to begin to equitize public health and looking at those disparities. And so we had started some initial conversations um, with Columbus Public Health around that. Of course, Mayor Ginther talked about that in his state of the city. We are really, we're kind of focused on that. So I think this crisis, this pandemic crisis has 
really unveiled some of those challenges, whether it is access to healthcare, access to, you know, good food and fresh food and et cetera, you know, how messaging uh, impacts, you know, communities of color and, you know, when those messages reach those communities and who delivers those messages and how they receive them so that they can take the same precautions. You know, understanding that sheltering in place for the privileged is quite easy. You know, it's easy for me to set up my laptop in my home and have the necessary Wi-Fi and all the things that I need to do to work, but that, you know, not everyone has that luxury. And if you have to go to work because you are deemed an essential worker or you're an hourly worker and you're deemed essential, the risk that you might take to go into the workplace because you need, you know, you need that paycheck to continue to pay bills. You need to be able to take care of your family. And so, you know, that, that little headache or scratchy sore throat or slightly elevated fever, you know, you still go into work and realizing that you may have this, this deadly virus. And then also seeing that because of some of the comorbidities that disproportionately impact people of color, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, asthma, et cetera. And that goes way back beyond that's historically why our communities uh, have been disproportionately impacted with that. Now we see that those individuals who then contract COVID-19 may disproportionately find themselves in the hospital. There's a big hospital bill, of course, and, and or death, which is awful. And while the numbers aren't trending as bad in Ohio as they are in states like Illinois and in Michigan and Louisiana, we still uh, began to see, we wanted to see the data quickly mm-hmm. as an organization. And, you know, we began, I had a series of tweets, others working with some other organizations, the Urban League and other organizations to say we want to see the data because we want to work on the ground now to try and inform these communities, you know, how deadly this disease can be for them and the the steps that they should be taking and that they really do need to stay at home and what that means still means staying at home. It doesn't mean that 12 of your family members can come from across the community and convene for Easter or that you can go into the church for Easter. I mean, I know people probably think, oh, it's my family, but your family has walked about in this community and you're not sure who's carrying this disease and it can impact grandma or grandpa or little cousin or, or whomever. And so, so this has really allowed us to focus on this work and we are kind of ramping up in recovery phase to, to do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're gonna, not going to do it alone. We're going to do it with Columbus Public Health and, and other organizations so that we really can look at you know, the social determinants of health and how we set aside and look at policies and resources to impact that. I mean, this, as I've described it, Eleanor, is, is no different than what we saw with, with the AIDS pandemic or what we've seen when we've talked about infant mortality you know, we've been able to look at the data and to say color, communities of color, once we looked at the data, we saw disproportionately how it was impacting them or how it was impacting, you know, parts of our, our community. And so we almost need to follow some of those same playbooks to align policy and resources so that we can have adequate public health services across the community and it's equitable. I think 
really listening to some of the things that the governor and Dr. Acton have said, this has put a bright light on public health services overall mm -hmm. and our need to make significant investments in public health to make sure that we have the resources that we need to ramp up testing, to have supplies. We go through, you know, all kinds of exercises, but to make sure that we can stand up a field hospital quickly, like we did at the convention center. But this is trying to spotlight on our need to make sure that we have, we make those investments in public health, because when you don't, and I'm not saying that we haven't, but I know that the governor, you know, has expressed concern about making sure that we make significant investments in our public health system because of the role that they play in these kinds of these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. We think about them, I think oftentimes, so many times we think about the public health, the FEMAs, you know, all of these, EMA, we think about it in times of tornadoes and hurricanes and, you know, those kinds of floods and things like that. But this is something that has really brought our country to its knees. And it's the public health worker and the epidemiologists, the data, you know, that they can do, I mean, all the contact tracing and all the work that they need to do on behalf of really of us as a community to keep us safe is so important and they must have the resources necessary to do that. Yeah, that's something Dr. Acton has mentioned a couple of times, also the idea that a public health victory will sometimes look like they haven't done anything, right? Because they've, you yeah. know, and so that makes it even harder to sort of make that case for this is why we need to be investing mm -hmm. all along uh, right. to overcome some of this stuff. And so. so when we think about the equitable side of it, we want to make sure, want to make sure that public health departments and agencies have the ability to, to have, you know, bilingual health workers, health workers that are in the community. I mean, those kinds of things really go a long way to talking to individuals about their, their health and their wellness and the things that they need to do, but also making sure then people, you know, have access to doctors and other healthcare professionals to make the calls and ask the questions and then permission to do so without feeling as if, and, and it's a fine line, but feeling as if their paycheck is going to be so greatly threatened that they won't do it. Shifting a little bit, one thing that we've been writing about is obviously this is putting a lot of pressure on nonprofits from a financial perspective because they can't have the fundraising events, uncertainty in the economy overall. Has the You mentioned earlier that you'd gotten a lot of hard donations, I think. Is the Y been feeling any pressure from a financial perspective? You know, yes. Um, I think Originally, you know, we lost a kind of what I say a line of business when the schools closed uh, because our before and after school care programs in Western Rome, Gahanna were shut down immediately. Mm -hmm. And that is a financial hit to the organization. Um, we pivoted, though, to quickly, um, one, being able to keep the, that team um, engaged. So calling on the parents that they used to, the communities they were serving and the parents, creating at-home kits for their parents. And then we uh, have, we deployed a number of those individuals over to the family center to help us do things like serve lunches and dinners because mm -hmm. we don't have volunteers and to work our front desk, those kinds of things where they can help us. We felt it was important to try and keep people working. Um, and we have, you know, we do, we have the luxury of having some reserves and we have the luxury of having some resources. We do have an endowment, although we've not dipped into our endowment. 
We also then pivoted our fundraising plan to begin to share the stories of our frontline staff and the work that we're doing in order to raise awareness and donations from the generous people in this community and those who have given to us uh, through the years to recognize that we are still, we're really running all of the housing programs must continue on and that we still need those resources and we, we've obviously, obviously lost some resources. And that's gone well, just a generous community. The things that the Columbus Foundation has done with their emergency relief grants, United Way, we've benefited from those two grant programs. We've benefited from a grant, um, a shelter grant from Fifth Third Bank. And our YWCA USA has also assisted us in raising some resources, some dollars for our pandemic childcare. So, you know, I think for me, as the leader of the organization and especially our development team, what we did is kind of pivot our plan and immediately start to think about the ways in which we could raise additional dollars while we know we won't completely fill, fulfill the gap that was you know, left in losing childcare. We felt it was important to pivot and to talk to those, tell those stories and talk to those who have given to us through the, through the years and then be able to apply for some of the funding that is available in our community. We also are taking advantage of one of the federal loan programs, the Paycheck Protection Program. We've applied for that as well, and we hope that we will receive that grant. That will go a long way to, to assisting wow. us through this. But now it's time to start thinking about the future and building a recovery plan. And I think that for the next certainly nine months to one year, maybe 15 months, things are going to still look different. And our ability to have large-scale in-person events will probably be lost, if not significantly diminished. And so we're starting to think about virtual programming and other things that we can do that allow us to continue to, to, do, to have our events and tell our story and to have a woman of achievement event and those kinds of things, but in a different way, at least for 2020 and maybe 2021 until, you know, I think we're at, we have some vaccination uh -huh. protection in this community. And so you'll see some things coming even next week. Women of Achievement would have been next, uh, next Wednesday, April uh -huh. 22nd. So we will still find ways to celebrate those women and the work that they're doing. Uh, and that they've done, and the reason why they are the 2020 Class of Women of Achievement, while also honoring other achievers in this community and those that we've seen really stand out, uh, give other people a chance to talk about a woman in their life or that they've witnessed achieving through this pandemic. And so, you know, it's, it, it is that pivot. I mean, the good news, if there's good news, the good news I always say is, well, at least we know there will probably be some kind of drug therapies, there's antibody testing, and some vaccination protection coming. You know, I have faith in our research and health researchers and, and health professionals that, that it, will, it will come. And, you know, we, we hear about a year, you know, a little more than a year. And so we may have to operate in a different way for a period of time, but then hopefully we can start to come out of this in 2021. And I know that that seems like such a long way away, but 
if we had no vision of that, Eleanor, I would really, that would, that would be sad, you know? Yeah. So knowing, you know, when you start to hear, okay, second quarter next year, those kinds of things, it allows you to plan in a different way. Um, I still, you know, it'll still be somewhat different. This will change us probably for a long time, but maybe forever. But I think we all, all organizations, we have to pivot in some, some way. We just have to think about doing things in a different way. And, and that's what we're going to do. I want to follow up on a couple things in there. First, have you been approved for your PPP loan or are you still waiting to? For we're, that? Still, we're still yeah. waiting. Yeah, I think we have an SBA number, which okay. I've heard is a good thing. But I'm due to get an update today and hopefully we'll hear about approval soon. We applied, I think, on the that Friday that they became available. Huntington was up and running and ready to go, so we applied very quickly. You mentioned a lot of pivoting. Have you been able to retain your full staff, or have you had to do any furloughing? Or we have not had any furloughing or laying off. Um, we've retained all of our staff. Of course, 60, so we have 200 employees. I would say... If you think about it in thirds, a third of those employees, maybe a little more than a third, are essential workers. So they are working their regular, regularly scheduled shift. The next third or so would have been probably, you know, some of them in our childcare and some of them are part-time. So some of those part-time employees, you know, their hours have gone down to zero by choice because they perhaps didn't want to take advantage of some of the other slots that we had available. But many uh, just filled in in other slots because we needed, you know, more people to help us uh, at the family center and in the downtown building. So they filled in in the child care, food service, front desk, that kind of thing. And that we are grateful for that because we have also some employees who went out on sick leave or FMLA, not because they were ill, but because they are in a higher risk category and mm -hmm. their healthcare professionals were advising them that they should really stay at home. Mm -hmm. So we had, to, we had to backfill. So we were able to do that with some of our existing staff. It has, it has gone very, very well. I'm, I'm so amazed at Team YWCA and the things that they do to pull together. They've done a great job and they, they just amaze me every day. I mean, they're so, someone said to me when I was there on Friday at the Family Center, a gentleman by the name of Keith, head of security, Keith said, you know, Miss Christie, this is just what we do. You know, this is what I tell everybody. This is what we do. This is the service that we provide is we got to do this for the community. So we got to come to work. We got to mask up, got to put on our gloves. And, and this is what we do. And I drove away from peace with tears in my eyes because I was like, what a great attitude. And this is what we do. And we're doing everything. That team has done everything that they need to do to keep everyone properly distanced and, and everything, and they just, and, and our downtown team is the same way. And so, you know, that, that really fortitude and enthusiasm is what's really carrying us through, uh, through this. They really are the heroes in this, in this whole thing because this is what we do. Well, I was going to ask, and I, I guess it sounds like they, you're already on the same page, but, but as the CEO, kind of what messaging are you doing to your team and how are you keeping them, you know, focused on that, on that theme that this is what we do? I started, Eleanor, when, we, when this whole thing first happened, and I, I'll tell you kind of a, just a quick short story of kind of how I came to this. So 
I worked for Mayor Coleman in 2001 during the 9-11 and was part of the team who quickly had to spring into action to you know, make changes in buildings and all the things that we had to do. I mean, think back on that time. I'm like, we didn't even wear ID badges back then. Uh, mm-hmm. And we quickly were like, you have to show your ID badge. Find mm-hmm. it, you know? And I kind of called on that experience of Mayor Coleman was calm and had really helped helped me develop kind of a set of crisis leadership tools, I would say, going through that, Mayor Coleman and Time Marsh as our chief of staff. And so I kind of called, recalled kind of how we operated back then. And of course, that was a long time ago. We didn't have nearly the tools that we have now. So I started with a series of, you know, memos that went to staff that were also shared with our board in terms of, because, you know, as you recall, as Governor DeWine was doing all the, making all the steps, it was like, Every day, there was almost a new thing. I would put out uh, memos to the full team to say, okay, here's the new, this is what's happening, this is what we have to do. And of course, it always had the messages around, you know, your hand washing, social distancing, you know, et cetera. Stay home if you're sick and all that. Quickly, we have a leadership team of, I think there are 12 of us, and we meet, we started meeting daily, initially, to give updates and to have input on you know, changes that we needed to make with regard to the building and so forth and and buildings and how all that would get communicated. And the team did a great job cascading those messages down uh, in addition to the the weekly memos that went out. I think from there, it was, so it's, you know, communication, 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 stressing that all doesn't have to come from me. It also has to come from the other leaders in the building. Then also being around and being present and being able to talk to employees, especially in those first few weeks when, you know, fear was very high and before we didn't know what the next thing was going to be. And we didn't know what it was going to look like before we started having some of those first cases. Also, the public health commissioner, Dr. Mashika Roberts, is on our board. I'm grateful to her leadership, but also being able to her accessibility and being able to communicate with her directly about things that we should and should not be doing. And then I'm also grateful that we are part of a larger system with our housing, our homeless system, because we have we have calls with Community Shelter Board and we have calls, you know, other calls in the community that gave us the right protocols on the housing side. And so all of that allowed me to have the tools that I needed to to lead, but to communicate to the team, this is the this is the way we're going to operate. That's really been kind of the cornerstone of what I believe is helping us navigate this is being communicative and talking to staff and being transparent. This is why we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And even when it's those difficult decisions of there are people who are working from home and feeling, you know, I had the feeling of creating the them and us kind of environment, but communicating to the team there are parts of this of our work that are frontline and we must continue on and giving individuals the grace to express if they didn't how they felt about it but also giving them the grace if they felt that they needed to have a conversation with hr about how you know if they were not comfortable coming to work that they could do that and by and large and that has gone very well 
there have been bumps along the way, especially when, you know, a group of people goes home and the feeling is all the office staff gets to go home, but their Mm -hmm. work can be done from home. And I think everyone who's been working from home that doesn't have, you know, any kind of compromised health health situation or significant childcare issue has been in the building. They go in, they drop off supplies, they see people. We're all, you know, every week brings a new level of comfort with this whole thing. You probably feel the same way. And I think every week, now that we're understanding the data and seeing the numbers, people get more comfortable. Now we're wearing masks. People have, you know, it's not giving them false courage or comfort, but okay, I'm going to go out more, you know, that kind of thing. So that has also helped as our public health professionals have prescribed different ways for us to engage and interact. And then just supporting our team mm-hmm. and the team knowing that we, you know, as someone said, we know you all have our backs. We're doing something that starts today, actually. If you've ever been in our buildings, the front desk was, you know, it's just that. It was a pie, you know, what you think of almost like a hotel type desk open. Well, glass is getting installed as a protective barrier. And it's one of those things that we thought about before, but, you know, it was like, okay, spend this money on these things or those things and we were like well now's the time to pull the trigger on (laughs) so there's a new protective barrier that's going up the family center already their staff put a temporary barrier up but you know we're doing those things because we know we're in this for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. and every little step Eleanor goes to to letting those employees know we care about them, we care about their safety, we care about the work that they do, and we want them to be safe. And the last thing I'll tell you that we, we did last Friday, which is one of the most important things, was we were able to uh, extend pandemic pay increases to the frontline workers who are working their regular scheduled shifts. Uh, we were able to do that, does not cause any harm to the organization, I think that also goes a long way to letting those employees know that what they are doing is important and we we see them and we hear them and we recognize them and we want to them for them to have a little extra pay going through this. What is the pandemic pay look it's like? A, it's a dollar fifty uh, per hour. That's great to hear. I feel like at a time when so many places are having to to let people go. Yes, I, I agree. And I just, I really empathize with my brothers and sisters in the arts world, arts and culture, the library, other nonprofits who have had to furlough and, and let people, um, you know, lay off people. Uh, I'm very close with Tony Collins at YMCA. And, you know, my heart just breaks for him to have to make those tough decisions. They're the right decisions. And hopefully, you know, we will see a time when those employees can return. And YMCA is doing a beautiful job of helping to provide shelter to mm-hmm. some of the single adults and such. We've just happened. I think the way our business is laid out and designed, we just, we, we just, it just so happened. We're maybe just small enough with just 200 people and a little nimble enough that we didn't, you know, we didn't have to do that. But, you know, if this were to extend into a protracted stay at home, or we were to lose the school year next year, we will be having a different conversation. Mm-hmm. We will be having a different conversation. Well, let's hope that, that we can start to come out of this in some ways, but you're right. I think it's a, a long haul of 
things looking a little bit different. So it is. What are you? Are you all starting to hear about recovery plans? Uh, when you're you know, I feel like they kind of every day say soon we're going to tell you about the recovery plans, <laughs> which I understand. I think they don't want to commit to things that they don't know that they can do. Um, so I don't know. I, I maybe today we'll start to hear more. I think you can. You know, it's safe to assume kind of a phased rollback of stuff. And I saw that uh, the governor of California was tweeting about kind of the five points he's looking at. And one of them is a way to measure when we need to go back to this, which I thought was interesting, because I think that's an idea that I just, you know, I think people are thinking about is we'll go kind of back to normal and then maybe step off with the bars and restaurants. They they can't really do that. They need to either reopen or not reopen. You know, they can't do a little bit, half measures. So, right, right. I don't know. know. It's also going to depend on, you know, just human behavior. Mm -hmm. When are, when, when are people, you know, a restaurant, things can be open, but when are people going to be comfortable going into those places and dining in or, sitting in a movie theater or sitting, you know, going to the art museum. I mean, when are people going to have a level of comfort? And all along the way, still looking at the numbers of cases that we have in our community, you know, because some communities are, they are, the comfort level may come back more quickly because they never had 700 cases like Franklin County. They only had Mm -hmm. two, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean that the virus isn't there. But, you know, or if there's a sustained time when there are no cases for, you know, or, or the cases continue to decline, we'll have to see what that, what that looks like. You know, sometimes I hear the case, cases in, like I'll hear Franklin County, you know, 700 and some cases, and you're like, wow, that sounds like a lot. But then you're like, well, we're almost a county of a million people. Yeah, yeah. You still have to do all the things that you have to do. I mean, I guess my hands will never be the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they are, uh, I, I'm looking for all the, all the best hand creams right now because they're so dry. But, you know, the amount of cleaning that we do, we'll probably be doing this just, you know, for a long time. And mm-hmm. probably the thing that we're doing it, you know, or we'll be wearing masks for a long time until, you know, we have some assurances that we have protection from this. You know, at YWCA, we, you know, we're always, we're meeting in, in each other's offices and sitting down and people have bowls of candy. I mean, the whole, you know, like a lot of workplaces, this fall, a number of us passed around something, you know, whether it was a sinus, I don't know what it was, sinus infection, virus, whatever it was. And it lasted for a long time in the building. And, you know, it was one of those things where, it got to the point where people were like, I'm not coming in your office. You know, <laughs> you've had the thing, whatever it is. I told Dr. Roberts, I said, as soon as you have the serological testing, I, I'm signing up for that. I, I don't know that I've had an exposure or what, but whatever we passed around last fall and winter was pretty awful. I just want to see you know, <laughs> if I've had any exposure to it. Did that build me up for something, for something else? I don't know, but I tell you, it was, it was pretty, and yeah. when I thought about how fast that, which was probably not this, right, but how fast it got passed around, that really created an awareness of how fast COVID could get passed around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
it's I'm sure that when we go back we'll you know be wearing masks and and that's all yeah. the governor was talking about yesterday and just being a lot more conscious of all that stuff so the world is yeah. but I really I appreciate you making the time to chat with sure. me about all this but thank you again it was great to chat with you great to chat with you thank you so much for taking the time to do this and for telling all the stories that you're telling during this time I think but now more than ever, I think the news media really has been, you know, it's very important. And I really just appreciate, you know, the kind of the honest reporting and telling the stories and keeping us updated. Well, we do our best. Thank you. Thanks so much, Christy. Have a good Absolutely. rest of your day.